Section 17 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bushnell on Christian Nurture, Part 2. There is a third feature of this little tract which gives it great interest and importance in our view. Dr. Bushnell cannot sustain his view of the intimate connection between the religion of parents and that of their children without advancing doctrines which we regard as of great value, and which, according to his testimony and other sources of evidence, have been very much lost sight of, especially in New England. The philosophy which teaches that happiness is the great end of creation, that all sin and virtue consist in voluntary acts, that moral character is not transmissible but must be determined by the agent himself, that every man has power to determine and to change at will his own character, or to make himself a new heart, has, as everyone knows, extensively prevailed in this country. The obvious tendency and unavoidable effect of this philosophy has been to lower all the scriptural doctrines concerning sin, holiness, regeneration, and the divine life. It represents every man as standing by himself, and of course denies any such union with Adam as involves the derivation of a corrupt nature from him, divine influence and the indwelling of the spirit dwindle down to little more than moral suasion. Union with Christ as the source of righteousness and life is left out of view. His work is regarded as scarcely more than a device to render the pardon of sin expedient and to open the way to deal with men according to their conduct. Attention is turned from him as the ground of acceptance and source of strength and everything made to depend on ourselves. The great question is not what he is and what he has done, but what is our state and what have we done. Religion is obviously something very different according to this view of the gospel from what it is according to the evangelical scheme of doctrine. The pillars of this false and superficial system are overturned in Dr. Bushnell's book. He has discovered that goodness, holy virtue, or the production of goodness is the supreme end of God, page 34 that virtue must be the product of separate and absolutely independent choice, is pure assumption, page 31. He, on the contrary, asserts that virtue is rather a state of being than an act or series of acts, page 31. What mighty strides are here! So glued, says he in his argument, page 39, quote, is our mental habit to the impression that religious character is wholly the result of choice in the individual, or, if it be generated by a divine ictus, preceded of absolute necessity by convictions and struggles, which are possible only in the reflective age, that we cannot really conceive, when it is stated, the possibility that a child should be prepared for God by causes prior to his own will. End quote. There was a truth, he says, Discourses, page 42, quote, an important truth underlying the old doctrine of federal headship and original or imputed sin, though strangely misconceived, which we seem in our one-sided speculations to have quite lost sight of, end quote. Very true. But by whom has this important truth been more misconceived, misrepresented and derided than by Dr. Bushnell and his collaborators? How can we hope, he asks, quote, to set ourselves in harmony with the scriptures in regard to family nurture or household baptism or any other subject while our theories include, exclude, or overlook precisely that which is the basis of all their teachings and appointments. A question those must answer who can. It is precisely this one-sided view of the nature and relation of man, this overlooking his real union with Adam and consequent participation of his nature and condemnation, 
that old-school men have been perpetually objecting to the speculations of New England, and we therefore rejoice to see any indication that the truth on this subject has begun to dawn on minds hitherto unconscious of its existence. If, as Dr. Bushnell teaches, character may be derived from parents, if that character may be formed prior to the will of the child, if the child is passive during this forming process, the period of its effectual calling, and emerges into its individuality, quote, as one that is regenerated, quickened into spiritual life, end quote, argument, page 32, then of course we shall hear no more of regeneration as necessarily the act of the subject in it, the decision of his own will. And then, too, the doctrine of the plenary ability of the sinner to change his heart must be given up. This latter doctrine is indeed expressly repudiated, the mind, says Dr. Bushnell, quote, has ideals revealed in itself that are even celestial, and it is the strongest of all proofs of its depravity that, when it would struggle up towards its own ideals, it cannot reach them, cannot, apart from God, even lift itself towards them. End quote, page 26. How true, and yet how old is this? Again, quote, what do theologians understand by a fall and a bondage under the laws of evil, but evil, once entering a soul, becomes its master, so that it cannot deliver itself? Therefore, that a rescue must come, a redemption must be undertaken by a power transcending nature. End quote. Page 37. Here, then, we have the avowal of most important truths, truths which sound Presbyterians have ever held dear, Happiness is not the chief good, virtue does not consist entirely in acts, but as a state of being. Men are not isolated individuals, each forming his own character by the energy of his will. Moral character is transmissible, may be derived passively, on the one hand by birth from Adam, and on the other by regeneration. When sin enters the soul, it is a bondage from which it cannot deliver itself. Redemption must come from God. These are comprehensive truths. Dr. Bushnell seems surprised at finding himself in the company into which such avowals introduce him. He endeavours to renounce such fellowship and to avenge himself by unwanted sneers at those to whose doctrines he is conscious of an approximation. This can be easily borne. He sees as yet men as trees walking. Whether he will come forward into clearer light or go back into thicker darkness we cannot predict. There is much in his book which makes us fear the latter alternative, we hope and pray for the brighter issue. We have brought forward the two great points in which we agree with our author, the fact of the intimate religious connection between parents and children, and the primary importance of Christian nurture as the means of building up the church. On these points we have dwelt disproportionately long and left less space and time for the consideration of the scarcely less important parts of the subject. The fact being admitted that there is a divinely constituted connection between the religion of parents and that of their children, the question arises, how is that fact to be accounted for? There are three modes of answering this question. The one is that which we have endeavoured to present, which refers the connection to the promise of God and his blessing on faithful parental training. The second resolves it into a law of nature, accounting for the connection in question in the same way, or on the same principles, which determine the transmission of other forms of character from parent to children. The third is the ritual or church system, which supposes it is by the rites and ministrations of the church that this connection is effected. We understand Dr. Bushnell to take the second of these grounds, and to maintain that there is no difference between that and the first. Some, he says, quote, take the exterior view, regarding the result as resting on a positive institution of God, I have produced the interior view, that of inherent connection and causation. 
but every theologian who has gone beyond his alphabet will see at a glance that both views are only different forms of one and the same truth, having each its own peculiar uses and advantages. End quote. Argument, page 18. Before stating our view of Dr. Bushnell's system and our objections to it, it is proper to make two remarks. The first is that it is very difficult to understand what a writer means who employs a new terminology. It requires no little time to fix the usage of language, and the reader is very liable to attach to new terms some different shade of thought from that which the writer intended. Besides, it is a very small portion of his own thoughts that an author can spread out upon a written page. There is a fullness within which remains undisclosed, and which nothing short of frequent conference or communication can adequately reveal. There is therefore a great difference between what a book teaches and what the author himself may hold. The book teaches what, in fact, it conveys to the majority of candid and competent readers, though they may not gather from it precisely what the writer meant to communicate. In saying, therefore, that to our apprehension Dr. Bushnell's book gives a naturalistic account of conversion or the effect of religious training, we do not mean to assert that he meant to give such an account. The second remark is that he distinctly declares himself to be a supernaturalist. Quote, I meant to interpose, he says, all the safeguards necessary to save myself from proper naturalism, and I supposed I had done it. I really think so now. The very first sentence of my tract is a declaration of supernaturalism. End quote. Page 36. Again, quote, So far from holding the possibility of restoration for men within the terms of mere nature, whether, as regards the individual acting for himself or the parent acting for his child, the incarnation of the Son of God himself is not, as I believe, more truly supernatural than any agency must be which regenerates a soul. End quote. Page 34. Notwithstanding these explicit declarations, it is very possible that he teaches what others mean by naturalism, and that what he calls supernaturalism is something very different from what is commonly understood by that term. There is, on page 14 of the Discourses, a passage which we think is the key to his whole doctrine. Quote, what more appropriate to the doctrine of spiritual influence itself than to believe that, as the Spirit of Jehovah fills all the worlds of matter and holds a presence of power and government in all objects, so all souls of all ages and capacities have a moral presence of divine love in them and a nurture of the Spirit appropriate to their wants. End quote. The Spirit of Jehovah is here recognized as everywhere present in nature, influencing and governing its operations. On page 35 of the argument, he speaks of a supernatural grace which inhabits the organic laws of nature and works its result in conformity with them. And on page 32, of organic power as inhabited by Christ and the Spirit of God. On page 38, of natural laws inhabited by supernatural agencies. These, as we understand these expressions in their connection, is nothing more than theism. Dr. Bushnell rejects the mechanical theory of the universe. He is not a naturalist in the sense of the French school, which attributes all effects to the unconscious power of nature, nor in the sense of those who hold that God is entirely external to the world, as a mechanist to a machine. He holds that his spirit is everywhere present and operative in nature, guiding and giving power to mere natural laws. And on this ground he claims to be a supernaturalist. And so he is, so far as this goes. But this is not supernaturalism in the ordinary sense of the term. There is here no distinction between God's providential agency and the operations of his grace. 
He is, according to this doctrine, in no other and in no higher sense the author of regeneration than of a cultivated intellect or of a majestic tree. The intelligence and skill manifested in fashioning a flower or forming an eye is not in organic laws, but in those laws as inhabited, to use Dr. B's language, by God and his spirit. The result is due to the supernatural element in the power, which determines the effect. Now, if conversion, if the regeneration and sanctification of the soul, is only in this sense a supernatural work, then it is as much a natural process, as much the result of organic laws, as any other process of nature whatever. This is naturalism, not as distinguished from theism, but as distinguished from supernaturalism, in the religious sense of the word. The very thing designed by that term is that conversion and other spiritual changes are effected not merely by a power above anything belonging to nature as separated from God, but by a power other and higher than that which operates in nature. A man may be a theist, he may believe that the world is not a lifeless machine, but everywhere pervaded by the presence and power of God, and yet if he admits no higher or more direct interference of a divine influence in the minds and hearts of men than this providential agency, then he is no supernaturalist. God, according to this view of the subject, is as much the author of depravity as of holiness. For to his providential agency, to his presence of power and government, all second causes owe their efficiency. Men are not born, their bodies are not fashioned, nor their souls created, without the exercise of his power. The organic laws by which a corrupt nature is transmitted from Adam, or corrupt habits fostered by parents in their children, or by society in its members, or by one man in another man, are inhabited by divine energy. If this, therefore, is all the supernaturalism of which Dr. Bushnell has to boast, he is not one inch further advanced than the lowest rationalists. Pelagianism, says Hazel, Quote, found its completion in ordinary rationalism, which regarded grace as the natural method of providential operation. End quote. And Wigscheider, the most phlegmatic of rationalists, says, Operationes gratiae supernaturales recte monorunt neque accuratius esse definitas nec disserte promissas in libri sacris neque omnio esse necessarias, cuum quae ad animum emendandum valiant omnia legibus nature ad deo optime efficiantur, nec tenique ita conspicuas ut cognosci certa ratione possint, accedit quod libertatem et studium hominum impediunt mysticorum somnia fovent et deum ipsum auctorem augunt peccatorem ab hominibus non ementatis commissorum, omnis igitur de gratia disputatio ad doctrinam de providentia dei rectius refertur. Institutiones, section 152. A passage remarkably coincident in spirit, though much more decorous in form, with one in Dr. Bushnell's argument, page 35. Quote, if I had handled my subject wholly under the first form, or under the type of the covenant, as a positive institution, I presume I should have found a much readier assent, and that for the very reason that I had thrown my grounds of expectation for Christian nurture, the other side of the fixed stars, 
whereby the parent himself is delivered from all connection with the results, and from all responsibility concerning them. He will reverently acknowledge that he has imparted a mould of depravity, but the laws of connection between him and his child are operative, he thinks, only for this bad purpose. If any good come to the child, it must come straight down from the island occupied by Jehovah, to the child as an individual, and does not, in its coming, take the organic laws of parental character on its way to regenerate and sanctify them as its vehicle. As regards a remedy for individualism, little is gained, even if the doctrine that children ought to be trained up in the way they should go is believed, for there is no effectual or sufficient remedy till the laws of grace are seen to be perfectly coincident with the organic laws of depravity. Therefore it was necessary to keep to the naturalistic form. This we regard as a pretty distinct avowal that the author admits no divine influence other than that which inhabits organic laws. There is no other or higher efficiency in the effects of grace than in propagation of depravity. If the parent is the mould or vehicle through which a depraved nature flows to his child, by a process just as natural, the believing parent is the vehicle of spiritual life to his offspring. The account given in his discourses of the rationale of this connection between parent and child confirms our impression that it is regarded as merely natural. If we narrowly examine, he says, quote, the relation of parent and child, we shall not fail to discover something like a law of organic connection as regards character subsisting between them. Such a connection as makes it easy to believe and natural to expect that the faith of the one will be propagated to the other. Perhaps I should rather say such a connection as induces the conviction that the character of the one is actually included in that of the other, as a seed is formed in its capsule and being there matured by a nutriment derived from the stem is gradually separated from it. It is a singular fact that many believe substantially the same thing in regard to evil character, but have no thought of any possibility in regard to good. The child after birth is still within the matrix of parental life and will be more or less for many years, and the parental life will be flowing into him all that time just as naturally and by law as truly organic as when the sap of a trunk flows into a limb. We have much to say in common with the Baptists about the beginning of moral agency, and we seem to fancy there is some definite moment when a child becomes a moral agent, passing out of the condition where he is a moral nullity, and where no moral agency touches his being whereas he is rather to be regarded at the first as lying within the moral agency of the parent, and passing out by degrees through a course of mixed agency to a proper independency and self-possession. The supposition that he becomes at some certain moment a complete moral agent, when a moment before he was not, is clumsy and has no agreement with observation. The separation is gradual. He is never, at any moment after birth, to be regarded as perfectly beyond the sphere of good and bad exercises, for the parent exercises himself in the child, playing his emotions and sentiments and working a character in him by virtue of an organic power. And this is the very idea of Christian education, that it begins with nurture or cultivation. And the intention is that the Christian life and spirit of the parents shall flow into the mind of the child and blend with his incipient and half-formed exercises and that they shall thus beget their own good within him, their thoughts, opinions, faith and love, which are to become a little more, and yet a little more of his own separate exercise, but still the same in character. End quote. Discourses, pages 26 to 31. This, the author admits, is, at least as to its form, a naturalistic account of conversion. 
as to our apprehension it is so in substance as well as form. Quote, as the Spirit of Jehovah fills all the worlds of matter and holds a presence of power and government in all objects, so all souls of all ages and capacities have a moral presence of divine love in them and a nurture of the Spirit appropriate to their wants. End quote. And it is this natural influence of mind on mind, this power which dwells in all souls according to their character and capacities, that moulds the character of the child, infuses little by little spiritual life into it, and causes it to emerge into its individual existence, a regenerated being. Here all is law, organic natural law, as much so, to use his own illustration, as in the transmission of the life of the parent plant to the seed. To be sure, the life is not in the plant, the solar heat is necessary to the vitality of the plant and to its transmission to the seed. The effect is therefore not to be referred to the laws of vegetation as independent of solar influence, but the solar influence is operative through those laws. In like manner, the spiritual life of the parent does not exist independently of the Spirit of God, nor can it be transmitted to the child without his influence, but it is nevertheless transmitted in the way of nature, and as the result of organic laws. This, as before remarked, is mere theism as distinguished from the deistic or atheistic theory of nature. There is nothing supernatural in this process, nothing out of analogy with nature, nothing which transcends the ordinary efficiency of natural causes as the vehicles of divine power. There is all the difference between this theory of conversion and supernaturalism that there is between the ordinary growth of the human body and Christ's healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, or raising the dead. Both are due to the power of God, but the one to that power acting in the way of nature, and the other to the same power acting above nature. And a man who should explain all the miracles of Christ as the result of organic laws might as well claim to be a supernaturalist because he believes God operates in nature, as Dr. Bushnell. The whole question is whether the effect is due to a power that works in nature or above nature. The German infidel who refers Christ's miracles of healing to animal magnetism regards magnetism as a form of divine power, but he is nonetheless an unbeliever in the supernatural power of Christ on that account. That Dr. Bushnell's book admits of no other or higher influence in regeneration than that power of the spirit which is present in all worlds is still plainer, if possible, from his defense against the charge of naturalism. It goes no further than a denial of a reference of spiritual life to organic laws considered apart from a divine influence dwelling in them and operated by them. Quote, it is the privilege of the Christian not that he is doomed to give birth to a tainted life and cease, but that, by the grace of God dwelling in him and the child, fashioning his own character as an organic mould for the child, and the child to a plastic conformity with the mould provided, he may set forth the child into life as a seed after him one that is prepared unto a godly life by causes prior to his own will, that is, by causes metaphysically organic. Thus everything previous to the will falls into one and the same category. No matter whether it comes through vascular connection or parental handling or control, it comes to the child, I said, just as naturally and by a law as truly organic, i.e. just as truly from without his own will, as when the sap of a trunk flows into a limb. At some time, sooner or later, but only by a gradual transition, he comes into his own will, which, theologically speaking, is the time of his birth as a moral subject of God's government, and if he takes up life as a corrupted subject, so he may and ought to take it up as a renewed subject, that is, grow up a Christian. End quote. Argument, page 32.
In answer to a reviewer in the German Weekly Messenger, he says, quote, It was my misfortune that all the language of supernaturalism I might wish to employ was already occupied by the super-supernaturalism which he has described, and the fantastic impressions connected with the same. In order, therefore, to bring the spirit and redemption from their isolation, and set them in contact with the organic laws of nature, I was obliged to lean decidedly, as the truth would suffer, to naturalistic language, and to set my whole subject in a naturalistic attitude. If I take my position by the covenant of Abraham, and hang my doctrine of nurture on that, as a positive institution, or what is the same on its promises, if I then contemplate God as coming by his Spirit from a point of isolation above, in answer to prayer, or without, to work in the heart of the child regeneration by a divine stroke or ictus, apart from all connection of cause and consequent, the change called regeneration, and thus to fulfil the promise. I realise indeed a form of unquestionable supernaturalism in the mind of those who accept my doctrine, but it is likely to be as far as possible from the reviewer's idea of the supernatural in human natural form. For all the words I have used will have settled into a form proper only to religious individualism. Now, just as the reality of the rainbow is in the world's laws prior to the covenant with Noah, so there is in the organic laws of the race a reality or ground answering to the covenant with Abraham, only in the latter case the reality is a supernatural grace which inhabits the organic laws of nature and works its results in conformity with them. End quote. Argument, page 35. The idea we get from all this is that, as there is at one period a vascular connection between the parent and the child, in virtue of which the life of the one is the life of the other, moulding it into its own image as a human being. So, after birth, there is a metaphysically organic connection, in virtue of which, just as naturally, the spiritual life of the parent becomes that of the child, so that when it comes into its own will, it begins, or may begin its course, a regenerated human being. As the former of these two processes is a natural one, so is the latter. And as the vascular connection is the vehicle of a divine efficiency, so is the metaphysical connection. But in both cases that efficiency operates through organic laws. Or, as the rainbow is a product of natural laws, so it is a result of those laws that children should participate in the character and moral life of their parents. And as there would have been a rainbow whether God had ever promised it or not, so children would be like their parents whether God had ever made a covenant to that effect or not. In both cases there is a natural connection of cause and consequent. Now it is precisely this connection in the case of regeneration that supernaturalism denies. Any result brought about in the natural concatenation of cause and consequent is a natural effect. Any result brought about by an influence out of that connection is a supernatural effect. The controversy with the infidel is whether the works of Christ were brought about in the natural series of cause and consequent, and the controversy with the rationalist or Pelagian is whether regeneration is a natural sequence or not, whether its proximate antecedent, its true cause, is nature or grace, some organic law or the mighty power of God. These two views are as far apart as the poles. They cannot be brought together by saying God is in nature as well as in grace, for the two modes of his operation is all the difference. The whole question is whether God operates in any other way than through nature. The naturalist says no, the supernaturalist says yes. 
We are confirmed in our impression that we do not misinterpret Dr. Bushnell by the ridicule which he heaps on the idea of any intermediate interference of the Spirit of God. This he speaks of as God's coming from the state of isolation above, from beyond the fixed stars, from an island where he dwells. This he stigmatizes as the ictic theory, hanging, as he says Edwards does in his account of regeneration, quote, everything thus on miracle, or a pure ictus dei, separate from all instrumental connections of truth, feeling, dependence, motive, choice, there was manifestly nothing but to wait for the concussion. It was waiting, in fact, as for the arrival of God in some vision or trance, and since there was no intelligible duty to be done as means to the end, the disturbed soul was quite sure to fall to conjuration to obtain the desired miracle cutting itself with the knives of conviction, tearing itself in loud outcries, and leaping round the altar and calling on the god to come down and kindle the fire. End quote. Argument, page 14. There is surely no mistaking such a passage as this. To us it sounds profane. It is ridiculing the doctrine that God operates on the soul otherwise than through the laws of nature. He therefore disclaims all belief in instantaneous conversion. Footnote. Quote, Take the doctrine which I frankly say I do not hold, that regeneration is accomplished by an instant and physical act of God, to which act truth and all endeavours in the subject have no other relation as means to ends, than the ram's horns had to the fall of Jericho. Yet that instant, isolated act of omnipotence may fall on the heart of infancy as well as of adult years, and God may give us reason to expect it. End quote. Argument, page 33, and footnote. He appears to have no faith in what he calls an explosive religion, which comes suddenly with convictions and struggles. The whole tenor of his book is in favour of the idea that all true religion is gradual, habitual, acquired as habits are formed. Everything must be like a natural process, nothing out of the regular sequence of cause and effect. If Dr. Bushnell really denied what is commonly understood by experimental religion, if he had no faith in conversion by supernatural influence, and meant to place himself on the rationalistic side of all these controversies, he could hardly have more effectually accomplished his object than by setting, as he has done, his whole subject in a naturalistic attitude. Surely it ought not to be a matter of doubt on which side of such questions such a man stands, the true character of the theory of religion taught in this department of his book is further apparent from two additional considerations. In the first place, the author not unfrequently speaks quote, of generalizing the doctrines of grace and depravity so as to bring them into the same organic laws. End quote. Argument, page 33. He teaches that the laws of grace are perfectly coincident with the organic laws of depravity. Page 36. Now, as Dr. Bushnell does not hold that depravity is propagated by any supernatural agency of God, we do not see how he can claim that grace is thus communicated, the laws which regulate both being identical. We take these passages to mean that, as it is by a process of nature that depravity is communicated from parents to children, as this is the result of organic laws, so by a like process spiritual life is communicated from the parent to the child. The result is brought about in both cases by parental character and treatment as an organic power. 
The second consideration is that he avows it as one of his objects to present the most comprehensive form of truth possible, so as to include the most discordant views. He says, quote, I had a secret hope beforehand of carrying the ascent of Unitarians. In drawing up my view of depravity as connected with organic character, and also in speaking of what I supposed to be their theory of education, I did seek to present the truth in such a way that all their objections might be obviated. End quote. Page 27. He therefore exalts in their approbation and hopes they may approve every sentiment he may hereafter publish. He advocates towards them a very different course from that which has been hitherto adopted. He urges that great truths should be presented in such a shape as to secure their acceptance. Now it seems to us that all this argues either such an elevation that all differences of doctrine are lost sight of, as mountains and valleys seem one great plain to the aeronaut, or a great indifference to the truth. He must either suppose that the orthodox and Unitarians are like children, disputing about words when they really agree, had they only sense enough to know it, or that the points of difference are of so little importance that they may be dropped in a statement of the truth common to both. Either of these assumptions is not a little violent. It is not likely that Pelagians and Augustinians in all ages have held the same doctrine without knowing it, waiting until some philosophical mind should arise to frame a statement satisfactory to both parties. Nor is it probable that the difference between them, if real, is now for the first time to be shown to be of no account. Dr. Bushnell has done nothing. He has not advanced an inch beyond Pelagius. The latter was willing to call nature grace, and the former calls nature supernatural, and wishes Unitarians and Orthodox to consider that a solution of the whole matter. Unitarians are agreed, but the Orthodox demure. And well they may, for supernatural nature is but nature still, and if salvation comes through nature, Christ is dead in vain, and we are yet in our sins. Such compromises are nothing more nor less than ill-disguised surrender of the truth. And the truth is the life of the world. Dr. Bushnell, after quoting from various writers, passages teaching, as he has taught, the intimate religious connection between parents and children, and the paramount importance of Christian nurture, turns on the Massachusetts Committee, and speaking of his opponents, says, quote, These senses of orthodoxy have raised an outcry, they have stirred up a fright and driven you to the very extreme measure of silencing a book, in which, it turns out, they have been stirring up their heroism against Baxter and the First Fathers of New England, against Hopkins, West, Dwight, and I know not how many others, to say nothing of the ancient church itself, as understood by the most competent critics. And now, what opinion will you have, what opinion will all sensible men have, two years hence of this dismal scene of fatuity, which, in the year of our Lord 1847, has so infected the nerves of orthodox Massachusetts as even to stop the press of her Sabbath school society. End quote. But how comes it that while Unitarians agree with Dr. Bushnell, they do not agree with Baxter, Hopkins, West, or Dwight? Have they all along been mistaken as to what the orthodox taught until Dr. Bushnell presented the subject in its true light? The fact is, Dr. Bushnell is under a great mistake, the complaint against his book is not for what he has in common with Baxter and Dwight. It is not his teaching that the piety of the parent lays the scriptural foundation for expecting the children to be pious, nor that Christian nurture is the great means of their conversion, but it is for the explanation he has undertaken to give of these facts. 
It is because he has not rested them upon the covenant and promise of God, but resolved the whole matter into organic laws, explaining away both depravity and grace, and presented the whole subject in a naturalistic attitude. It is this that renders his book so attractive to Unitarians, and so alarming with all its excellencies to the Orthodox. Our understanding of Dr. Bushnell's theory of Christian nurture is then this. Men do exist as isolated individuals, each having his life entirely within himself and forming his character by his own will. There is a common life of the race and of the nation, of the church and of the family, of which each individual partakes and which reveals itself in each under a peculiar form, determined partly by himself and partly by the circumstances in which he is placed. As the child derives its animal life from its parents, with all its peculiarities, so also he derives his moral and spiritual life from the same source. The organic connection does not cease at birth, but is continued until the child becomes an intelligent, conscious, self-determining agent. Its forming period is prior to that event, during which it is in a great measure the passive subject of impressions from the parent, whose inward spiritual life, of what sort it is, passes over or is continued in the child. Such is the condition in which men are born into this world, and such the power of the life of the parent, that natural pravity may be overcome by Christian nurture, and a real regeneration affected by parental character and treatment as an organic power. Everyone sees there is a great deal of truth in this, and that most important duties and responsibilities must grow out of that truth. But at the same time, it is both defective and erroneous as a full statement of the case. It rests on a false assumption of the state of human nature and of the power of Christian nurture. It assumes that men are not by nature the children of wrath, that they are not involved in spiritual death, and consequently that they do not need to be quickened by that mighty power which wrought in Christ when it raised him from the dead. The forming influence of parental character and life is fully adequate to his regeneration. Education can correct what there is of natural corruption. In answer to the objection that this is the old Pelagian, rationalistic theory of human nature and conversion, it is said, the spirit of Jehovah fills all worlds, and everything is due to his presence and power. This, however, is only saying that second causes owe their efficiency to God, a truth which few naturalists and even few infidels deny. This, therefore, may be admitted, and yet all supernatural influence in the regeneration of men denied. It can hardly be questioned that the Bible makes a broad distinction between the agency of God by which the ordinary operations of nature are carried on, and the agency of his Spirit in the conversion and sanctification of men. The same distinction has always been made in the Church. In all controversies concerning grace, the question has been whether, apart from the influence of natural causes considered as the ordinary modes of the divine efficiency, there is any special and effectual agency of the Spirit in the regeneration of men. Dr. Bushnell may choose to overlook this distinction and claim to be a supernaturalist because he believes God is in nature, but he remains on the precise ground occupied by those who are wont to call themselves rationalists. We have already adverted to the difference which may exist between what a book teaches and what its author believes. This book, to our apprehension, teaches a naturalistic doctrine concerning conversion. The author asserts that he holds to the supernatural doctrine on that subject. He is, of course, entitled to the benefit of that declaration. All we can say is that he seems to use the terms in a different sense from that in which they are commonly employed, 
and that there is enough of a rationalistic cast about it to account for all the disapprobation it has excited and to justify the course of the Massachusetts Committee. For although it contains much important truth powerfully presented, and although it inculcates principles, considering the source whence they come, of no little significance and value, yet a book which in its apparent sense denies everything supernatural in religion could hardly be expected to circulate with the approbation of any orthodox society. Having presented what we consider the true ground of the admitted connection between believing parents and their children, and considered Dr. Bushnell's views on the subject, it was our purpose to call attention to the church or ritual doctrine. This, however, we can barely state. The church doctrine admits original sin and the insufficiency of nature, or of any power operating in nature, for the regeneration of men. This power is found in the church. As all men partake of the life of Adam by their natural birth, so they are made partakers of the life of Christ by their spiritual birth. He, by his incarnation, has introduced a new principle of life, which continues in the church, which is his body. And as baptism makes us members of the church, and therefore members of the body of Christ, it thus makes us partakers of his life. Just as a twig engrafted into a tree partakes of its life, so a child engrafted by baptism into the church partakes of the life of Christ. It is this life, thus supernaturally communicated, which is to be developed by Christian nurture, and not anything in the soul which it has by nature. This doctrine is presented in various forms, more or less gross or philosophical, according to the character and training of its advocates. It is, however, everywhere essentially the same, whether propounded at Rome, Oxford, or Berlin. The German philosophical form of the doctrine bids fair to be the popular one in this country, and is advancing with the contemptuous confidence which characterizes the school whence it emanates. Everything which is not ritual and magical is pronounced rationalistic. Nothing is regarded as spiritual but grace communicated by external acts and contacts. The true doctrine of Protestants, which makes faith necessary to the efficacy of the sacraments, is denounced as Puritan, which is rapidly becoming a term of reproach. This doctrine rests on a false view of the Church. The external body of professors is not the body of Christ, which consists only of believers. Transferring to the former the attributes and prerogatives which belong to the latter, is the radical error of Romanism, the source at once of its corruption and power. It rests also on a false view of the sacraments, attributing to them an efficacy independent of faith in the recipient. It assumes a false theory of religion. Instead of the free, unimpeded access of the soul to Christ, we are referred to the external church as the only medium of approach. Instead of the life of God in the soul by the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, it is the human nature of Christ, the second Adam, of which we must partake. The whole doctrine is nothing but a form of the physical theory of religion. It is a new anthropology palmed upon men as the gospel. We are constantly reminded of the remarks of Julius Müller that all attempts to spiritualize nature end in materializing spirit. A remark which finds a striking illustration in the new philosophy in its dealings with religion. Its most spiritual theories serve only to reduce the principle of divine life to the same category with animal life, something transmissible from parent to child, or from priest to people. There is great reason to fear that religion under such teaching will either sink into the formal ritualism of Rome or be evaporated into the mystic rationalism of Germany. 
Schleiermacher, whose views are so zealously reproduced, and between which, and his own, Dr. Bushnell seems often at a loss to choose, taught that Christ introduced a new life principle into the world. Human nature corrupted in Adam was restored to perfection in him. That life still continues in the church, just as the life of Adam continues in the race. Christianity is the perfection of nature, as Christ was the perfection of manhood. It is not with the historical, personal Christ that we have communion, any more than it is with Adam as an individual man with whom we have to do. Both are reduced to a mere power or principle. Christ, as the Son of God, is lost. So also in his system, the Holy Ghost is not a divine person, but the common spirit or common sentiment of the Church. The Holy Spirit has no existence out of the Church, and in it is but a principle. In this way, all the precious truths of the Bible are sublimated into unsubstantial philosophical vagaries, and every man pronounced a rationalist, or what is thought to be the same thing, a Puritan, who does not adopt them. Though we have placed the title of Dr. Tyler's letter to Dr. Bushnell at the head of this article, the course of our remarks has not led us into a particular consideration of it. This is not to be referred to any want of respect. The subject unfolded itself to us in the manner in which we have presented it, and we should have found it inconvenient to turn aside to consider the particular form in which Dr. Tyler has exhibited substantially the same objections to Dr. Bushnell's book. Dr. T., however, seems to make less of the promise of God to parents than we do, and to have less reliance on Christian nurture as a means of conversion. We are deeply impressed with the conviction that as to both of these points there is much too low a doctrine now generally prevailing, and it is because Dr. B. urges the fact of the connection between parents and children with so much power that we feel so great an interest in his book. His philosophy of that fact, we hope, may soon find its way to the place where so much philosophy has already gone. End of section 17